I'm dermatologist and hair specialist Dr. Jeff Donovan, and I'd like to welcome you to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. I'd like to welcome you back to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast for the July 11th, 2022 issue. We're in Season 2, and this is Episode 8. Evidence-Based Hair is a podcast produced by the Donovan Hair Academy and highlights new research in the field of hair loss. We'll use our time together not only to talk about what's new, but to reflect on how all this new information ties in with everything we've come to learn in the past, and we'll think carefully about where we're heading in the future as a hair loss community. I'll use various studies each week as a pivot point to discuss key diagnostic pearls and treatment tips that hopefully allow us all to become better practitioners. This podcast was created for practitioners of various backgrounds, but regardless of whether you care for patients with hair loss or simply care about the topic of hair loss, this podcast will be of interest. This podcast was created for educational purposes and shouldn't be considered a substitute for medical advice. The second Monday of each month is dedicated to the four T's Telogen effluvium, traction alopecia, trichotillomania, and tinea capitis. And today we'll review a variety of studies from the past month or two in these particular areas. We'll start out with studies in telogen effluvium talking about COVID-related hair shedding. We'll begin by a study by Mazito and colleagues published in the JEADV in June looking at a fascinating observation whereby the SARS-CoV-2 viral particles find their way into the antigen hair follicle. And this may be a very important mechanism by which this early onset shedding within weeks comes about. We often think of telogen effluvium as happening two to three months after some kind of trigger. We've learned that COVID shedding can happen as early as two to three weeks. And in this early COVID mechanism, perhaps this viral particle insertion into the hairs is relevant. We'll take a look at this really important study. Then we'll look at a nice review by Chech and colleagues in July in the Journal of Cosmetic Dermatology, a review of 26 articles published in the medical literature, nine observational studies, and 17 case reports. And we'll come together to review the five COVID fives and that is that women are five times more likely to be developing hair shedding after COVID infection than males. Individuals with COVID-related hair shedding are five times more likely to have a classic telogen effluvium than a dystrophic antigen effluvium. It takes five months to recover. Hair shedding happens at month two, but it takes five months to recover. 5% may not recover in an expected manner. And overall, there's probably five types of hair loss with COVID-19. Telogen effluvium, dystrophic antigen effluvium, alopecia areata, seborrheic dermatitis, and scarring alopecia. At least that's what's being reported. So we'll take a look at the five COVID-5s together. Then we'll go on to talk about trichotillomania, a meta-analysis by Thompson and colleagues in the Journal of Psychiatric Research from July looks at 30 studies and some 38,000 participants. What's the incidence of trichotillomania? 1%. What's the incidence of hair pulling? Probably about 8%. What's fascinating about this study is it really highlights that we've kind of been wrong all all the years saying that women are more affected by trichotillomania than men. It's probably pretty similar. We'll take a look at that study. Then we'll go on to look at studies of tinea capitis. Le Cerf and colleagues in the Skin Appendage Disorders Journal from May looked at the rate of asymptomatic carriage in family members. So if you have children with tinea capitis, how likely is it that family members are carriers? Well, in Belgium, it's 2.5%. We'll take a look at this study and the array of literature looking at asymptomatic carrier states in those affected by tinea capitis. And then we'll go on to look at a study of traction alopecia by Lucia in the May issue of the JAD, the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology. 
these authors looked at 167 patients with traction alopecia. Only one-third of patients presented before one year of onset of their hair loss. A third of patients were not treated at all. Only one-third of patients returned for follow-up. And of those that did return, only one-third had follow-up more than six months. Why should we have follow-up? Well, when you have follow-up and you have treatment, 63% of patients in this study improved and 33% stabilized. So the outcomes can be pretty good when you treat traction alopecia aggressively with appropriate follow-up. So we'll take a look at that study. The references for all of these studies are in the show notes that accompany the episode. So let's begin by studies of telogen effluvium and hair shedding. Are you still seeing a lot of patients with hair shedding post-COVID? Well, I certainly am. I'm certainly seeing a lot of patients with hair shedding. And sometimes we don't even know that they've had COVID. But of course, we know that many patients can be asymptomatic and shed. So this is a challenging subject area. But Mazito and colleagues in the Journal of the European Academy of Dermatology and Venerology in June published an absolutely fascinating study showing that the SARS-CoV-2 virus can find its way into antigen hairs. And this may be responsible for this mechanism of early shedding after infection. So let's back up a bit and talk about COVID shedding. Anywhere from 10% to 50% of patients can develop hair shedding after COVID infection. And initially, when the pandemic started, there was lots of articles which suggested that patients shed about two months to three months after infection. And it was thought that that makes sense. That sounds like a classic telogen effluvium. If you have some kind of trigger, you shed two to three months after the trigger. Whether it's weight loss or stress or low iron or surgery or COVID infection. So that's a pretty classic timing. But it's now understood over the last year or so that not every patient seems to follow that pattern. And some patients shed very early, within weeks. And so there's two types of shedding patterns. One, the classic pattern where patients shed about two months after the COVID infection. And a second pattern where patients shed very early, within weeks. And so data has now been emerging that suggests that in these patients whereby shedding occurs very early, it may not actually be a telogen effluvium at all. It may be a dystrophic antigen effluvium. Of course, there may be features of telogen effluvium in these patients sometimes as well, but it is actually the shedding of abnormal antigen hairs, similar to what we see in chemotherapy that may be responsible for the hair loss in these patients. And in Season 2, Episode 4 of the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast, I reviewed a study by Miola in the JAD, and that gave us some indication about this mechanism of early shedding. And in that Miola study, the authors evaluated 203 patients with COVID shedding, and 5% had this early onset pattern. 95% had the classic pattern, but 5% had this early onset pattern. Seven of the patients were assessed with trichoscopy, a biopsy, and a trichogram. All of the patients had a positive pull test. Trichoscopy of patients with this early shedding pattern showed empty follicles, not really very helpful, but there were no broken hairs and there were no other surprising features. But the trichogram showed 10% dystrophic antigen hairs. And a trichogram is a technique where you forcefully pull or pluck hairs from the scalp. Biopsies of patients with this early shedding pattern showed mostly antigen hairs, no inflammation, no miniaturization, Maybe a slight increase in the percent of telogen hairs, but no significant findings actually in biopsies. 
And so the conclusion of the Miola study was that this early onset shedding pattern in patients with COVID-19, when patients shed after just a few weeks, may be better classified as a dystrophic antigen effluvium. And so there's these two patterns of shedding. A pattern whereby patients shed within weeks and a pattern whereby patients shed at month two or month three. That's the classic telogen effluvium. The first mechanism is likely a dystrophic antigen effluvium. And so this study by Mazito and colleagues in the June issue of the JEADV comes back to this subject of early shedding, this possible dystrophic antigen effluvium. And so the authors from Brazil set out to further characterize this mechanism. They described a 25-year-old woman who was admitted to hospital with a seven-day history of cough, fever, shortness of breath, and she had a PCR-positive test for COVID-19. She was ill. She required oxygen. She was put on corticosteroids systemically. She required medications to suppress fever. She had a positive pull test for antigen hairs. So she had this antigen effluvium mechanism of post-COVID shedding. She had a scalp biopsy. It really wasn't that helpful. It showed no inflammation, which we are coming to recognize as a part of this early COVID shedding mechanism. But the authors sent her hairs off for electron microscopy. And here is where the absolutely fascinating finding was found. Electron microscopy of the outer root sheath at the area just above the bulb showed cytoplasmic vesicles with several viral structures within them, surrounded by crown-like viral particles, which is another way of saying that SARS-CoV-2 viral particles were likely present in that outer root sheath of the hair follicle. And so the authors of this study propose that we are now advancing our knowledge of this mechanism of early onset shedding after COVID-19. And this may be characterized by intense SARS-CoV-2 viral replication in the outer root sheath, dystrophic hairs on the trichogram, biopsies which don't really show much, they're non-inflammatory, and trichoscopy which shows empty follicles but not much else. No significant yellow dots, no broken hairs, no features of alopecia areata, and so this is the mechanism of early onset hair shedding after COVID-19. And it appears that the viral particles themselves are accumulating in the antigen hair follicle. So I really like this study. The authors remind us that keratinocytes have receptors for the virus, just like the lung epithelial cells do. Keratinocytes have ACE2 receptors and the TMPRSS2, and the virus probably gets into the skin by binding to ACE2 receptors on keratinocytes, and then they can replicate in the hair follicle or in skin cells. And this is likely contributing to this early onset COVID shedding, this dystrophic antigen effluvium. So I really like this study. I think it's a it's a very valuable study as we understand the mechanisms. For a good year, we thought that post-COVID shedding was pretty classic. Two months after the infection, you get shedding. And then it came to be realized that, wow, there are some patients that shed really early. And our understanding of this mechanism number two, this dystrophic antigen effluvium, I think is so valuable. And I commend these authors for this really nice study. So another study in the Journal of Cosmetic Dermatology in July reviewed all of the studies published to date relating to post-COVID hair loss. And authors from Japan and the U.S. set out to review some 26 articles, including nine observational studies and 17 case reports. And they showed that 
most of the studies dealt with telogen effluvium. And they nicely showed that most of the other studies were of this early onset telogen effluvium. So the late onset classic telogen effluvium was by far the more common, but the next most common was this early onset mechanism. And when you review all studies, it suggests that maybe about 12% of patients may have this early onset mechanism. The prior study that I mentioned from Brazil had suggested that maybe 5% of their patients had this mechanism. So I think we really need to watch for it because it, it may in fact be more common. Chech and colleagues showed that there was no clear trend between how severe a patient's COVID-19 was and the extent of hair loss. And I think that's really important because when COVID-19 first hit, we wondered whether patients that are sicker, patients that are in the ICU, patients that have more severe infection, are they the patients that are more likely to have severe hair loss? Well, some studies have suggested yes, but some studies have suggested no. And in fact, it's quite divided, and there's no clear evidence that sicker patients are more likely to have shedding. Still a bit controversial, but there's lots and lots of studies that suggest there's no clear evidence that severity is correlated with the chances of, in, of shedding. Not surprisingly, most of the studies in this review were of women who were having shedding, and the female-to-male ratio was around 5 to 1. So women are much more likely to have shedding after COVID-19 infection. Rate of resolution, which happened around five months, was around 95%. And so the authors of this study, Chech and colleagues, taught us that there's only been 20 patients published in the medical journals that are clearly documented to have resolved. So most studies in the medical literature look at patients that started shedding after COVID-19 infection, and that's where they leave the study. They don't go on to follow them for months after months after months to find out when they stop shedding. But there have been 20 patients with reasonably long follow-up, and 95% of patients have resolution. But 5% of patients don't seem to have a typical recovery pattern whereby they resolve after roughly five months. So I think we need to keep that in mind. I think that's really valuable information. We don't fully know yet the natural resolution of all COVID-19 infections. And so there's a lot of nice points in this review paper. It's clear that COVID affects women more than men. The reasons aren't clear. And when any condition affects women more than men, authors often hypothesize is related to hormones, related differences in estrogens and androgens and progesterones. The reality is we don't know. There's never been any really good studies to, to document why women are more susceptible to shedding post-COVID than men. And so it's really anybody's guess. It's really not clear why the hair loss is occurring. Certainly in the early onset effluvium mechanism that I spoke about, this dystrophic antigen effluvium, could be that there's viral particle infection of the hair follicles the reality is we don't really know. It's often proposed that there's this cytokine and chemokine storm whereby all these cytokines float around in the blood and work their way up into the scalp and trigger hair follicles to leave the scalp. You know, that sounds good. We really don't have a lot of great evidence. And all the studies, which aren't a lot, but there's a few, that have tried to look at markers of, of different proteins, inflammatory proteins that are expressed, really haven't been showing that there's any clear marker of what causes shedding. It seems pretty nice to say that there's chemokines and cytokines, storms that cause shedding, and it's the immune system trying to kill the virus that, that stimulates shedding. The reality is we don't know. We don't know yet really all the mechanisms by which hairs are triggered to shed. We certainly would like things to make a lot of sense when we talk about post-COVID shedding. 
For example, it seems that patients with severe infection should be the most likely to shed. The reality is most studies don't show that, and it's kind of controversial, and we can't really say that patients with severe infection are the most likely to shed. Many patients who are asymptomatic get shedding. And so the data is all over the place, but it's certainly not a clear trend that the severity of infection correlates with shedding. And finally, we really don't know the long-term outcome of patients who shed. We like to think that patients who shed will stop shedding after several months and things will get back to normal. The reality is we don't have that data. There's 20 patients published in the medical literature but there are patients that are shedding chronically with post-COVID. Whether this is related to long COVID, we don't really know. It'd be nice to tie that in. It would make sense to us that patients who are shedding chronically have a form of long COVID. But, you know, that's a stretch. There are patients who shed chronically with COVID. There are patients that shed chronically after vaccines. And so this is an area which is in its infancy and we don't know. And so I think we have to be careful to assume that patients that get shedding after COVID-19 will shed for a few months and then they'll stop and then the hair will grow back. That doesn't happen in everybody. We really need the data. But of the 20 patients that are published in the medical literature, there's 5% of patients that don't really seem to stop shedding on the expected manner. Now, whether they'll eventually stop shedding is not clear. How they stop shedding is not clear. If, in fact, they have a telogen effluvium is not clear. Is this, in fact, a prolonged type of alopecia areata? Is this an unusual type of cicatricial alopecia? I don't think we fully understand the mechanisms of chronic shedding in COVID and chronic shedding with vaccines, it's not common. And so it's hard to study because there's not a lot of patients. And so each practitioner who sees a lot of patients with hair loss is only going to see a very small number of patients with chronic shedding after COVID infection. And specialists that don't see a lot of patients with hair loss are not going to see many patients at all with chronic shedding after COVID or chronic shedding after vaccines because it's it doesn't seem that it occurs at a super high rate. But the key point is that not everybody stops shedding after a COVID-19 infection, at least not at the five-month mark. And so we clearly need more studies. But there are five key points that I'd like to leave you with, and I call these the five COVID-5s. And that is that... Females are five times more likely to shed than males after COVID-19 infection. That the mechanism of classic telogen effluvium, whereby patients shed after two to three months, is about five times more common than dystrophic antigen effluvium. Antigen effluvium, it might be, it might be even more common than five times, but it's certainly at least five times more common. Some studies have suggested it's. 5% of patients, but it's at least five times more common. It takes five months to recover. 5% of patients may not recover after five months. And there are five types of hair loss after COVID infection. Telogen effluvium, dystrophic antigen effluvium, and that's the majority. But there's cases of alopecia areata, seborrheic dermatitis, and scarring alopecia that have been reported in the literature. And so when patients come in and say, I had COVID-19 and I have hair loss, you have to think about everything. A patient could have a mechanism of hair loss unrelated to these. It may be that COVID-19 has accelerated or precipitated androgenetic hair loss. It may be that the stress of the pandemic has precipitated trichotillomania. We know that it can occur. And so we need to keep an open mind, but certainly... COVID-19 infection appears to directly impact at least five types of hair loss, telogen effluvium, dystrophic antigen effluvium, alopecia areata, rarely, seborrheic dermatitis, rarely, and scarring alopecia, rarely. And so from telogen effluvium and hair shedding, let's turn our attention to trichotillomania. And we'll look at a very nice meta-analysis of 
some 30 studies that have been published to date in the area of trichotillomania. How common is trichotillomania when you're asked? What number do you give? We'll take a look here that probably the number to quote is around 1%. So Thompson and colleagues published a very nice study in the Journal of Psychiatric Research in July, which was a meta-analysis. A meta-analysis of some 30 prior published studies. So trichotillomania is a hair-pulling disorder. It was classified as an impulse control disorder in the DSM-IV, or the Diagnostic and Statistic Statistical Manual 4. But when the DSM-5 was updated, it's now classified as an obsessive-compulsive disorder. There's a classic definition of trichotillomania, and that is recurrent pulling of hair resulting in hair loss, repeated attempts to stop or decrease the hair pulling, the hair pulling causes significant distress in social, occupational, or other areas of functioning. The hair loss is not attributable to another medical condition or another dermatologic condition. And the hair pulling is not better explained by another mental disorder. And so this is the formal definition of trichotillomania, and we'll see why this is important in just a minute. So, Authors from the U.S. and Brazil published this meta-analysis, and they set out to perform a review of all the published data looking at the prevalence of trichotillomania and hair pulling. Hair pulling being those hair pulling episodes that don't formally meet the definition of trichotillomania under the DSM-5. So of 713 records, they identified 30 studies which met their inclusion criteria, and there were 38,526 participants. So what were the results? Well, trichotillomania in these 30 studies of 38,000 patients had a prevalence of 1.14%. Hair pulling had a prevalence of about 8.84%. What's so fascinating about this meta-analysis is they looked at the differences between males and females. Males and females had a similar risk of hair pulling, and they had a similar risk of trichotillomania. Let's look first at hair pulling. When they looked in the data, in the literature, in all these 30 studies with 38,000 patients, if you didn't set the formal requirement that the hair pulling had to cause hair loss that was noticeable, men and women had an equal risk of hair pulling. But if your strict definition was the hair pulling had to cause noticeable hair loss, then females were at increased risk to have hair pulling that caused noticeable hair loss. In terms of trichotillomania itself, there was no difference in the preponderance of males affected compared to females affected, or vice versa. This is really important because the data 20 years ago and 30 years ago really started to emerge suggesting that women are much more likely to pull their hair and have trichotillomania than men. And that concept permeated the literature for many decades. And over the last decade, studies started to accumulate, suggesting that, hmm, maybe females are not that much more likely than males to, to have trichotillomania. And this meta-analysis is valuable because it really reminds us that it may be fairly equally distributed in the world, actually, um, and that females may not be um, at dramatically more increased risk of trichotillomania than males. So the conclusion of this study is that the prevalence of trichotillomania in the medical literature in these 38,000 patients is 1%, hair pulling, 8.8%. So I think that's really valuable. Hair pulling is super common. It may not meet the definition of trichotillomania, but a large percentage of patients pull their hair. It is a quality of humans that occurs in almost one in 10 individuals 
So I think that's really important. Clearly, more studies are needed. From trichotillomania, let's talk about tinea capitis and this asymptomatic carrier state. So we're not going to talk about patients with the tinea capitis infection. We're going to talk about the family members of those patients and how many of those family members are carrying the fungus on their scalp. So LeSerf and colleagues published a nice study in skin appendage disorders in May of 2022. Tinea capitis, as you know, is a superficial fungal infection of the scalp. There's many different types of dermatophytes that can affect the hair follicle and cause tinea capitis. And the most common organism differs in different countries. And so people that love studying dermatophytes can quote the exact dermatophyte which is most prevalent in Spain, in Italy, in Canada, in the U.S., in Bangladesh, in Australia, and it differs in different countries. Which dermatophyte fungus wins the prize as being the most likely cause of tinea capitis? And tinea capitis most commonly affects children age four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Those are the individuals that are more likely to be affected by tinea capitis. Microsporum canis is the name of the organism most common in Europe, and Trichophyton tonsorans, or T. tonsorans, is the most common in North America. Over time, more and more anthropophilic species, or these species that can survive quite well on humans, are being identified in Europe. And so the species are changing over time, uh, especially in Europe. Why do children have a greater chance of having tinea capitis than adults? Well, it's thought that the scalp of children has a lower concentration of fatty acids that can block the growth of dermatophytes. And as children age and sebum production starts occurring in adrenarche and puberty, that the sebum quality is quite fungi-static and Fungi can't grow well in the scalp and in hair follicles of um, teenagers and adults quite as well. So there's three types of dermatophyte fungi. There's anthropophilic. These are fungi which grow well on humans and, and can transfer human to human quite well. And then there's zoophilic fungi, which have their host in an animal in a dog, in a cat, in a rabbit, in a horse. Um, those are zoophilic. And then there's geophilic fungi, which have their, their source in the soil. And so there's these long lists of anthropophilic fungi, zoophilic fungi, geophilic fungi. And these are sometimes relevant to know about because when you have a patient with tinea capitis, it's really valuable to culture it send it off for culture to see what you can grow because it'll give valuable information about the species and then that'll help govern what antifungal agent to administer. And so anthropophilic fungi include T. tonsorans, T. rubrum, T. violaceum, T. shalanii. The zoophilic is M. canis, T. equinum, uh, M. distortum. And so there's certain anthropophilic and zoophilic fungi which are important to recognize. Now let's talk a bit about the asymptomatic carrier state before we dive into this study by Le Cerf. An asymptomatic carrier is someone who has a dermatophyte on their scalp, but they don't have any clinical signs. They don't have hair loss. They don't have redness. They don't have hair breakage. And it's often a family member of somebody who has tinea capitis. The reason asymptomatic carriers are so important to identify is they are a reservoir whereby other members of the family can be infected and can contribute to the failure of treatment. So let's say a brother has an asymptomatic carrier state and the brother's little sister has tinea capitis. 
Well, the little sister goes through treatment, successfully eradicates her tinea capitis, and then four months later has another patch of hair breakage on the scalp and tinea capitis again. Why is the little sister getting tinea capitis? Well, the brother is the asymptomatic carrier and continues to transfer dermatophytes to the sister. Asymptomatic carriers often have the anthropophilic species. These anthropophilic fungi often adapt much better to living on a human, and they don't mount a strong immune response often. And so they can hide out in the scalp of an individual without the immune system really trying to go after that carrier state. In other words, the fungi live in the scalp, but that individual has no redness, no itching, no hair breakage. Zoophilic fungi, on the other hand, are usually not asymptomatic carriers. The immune system goes after zoophilic fungi, M. canis, M. distortum. The immune system tries to kill these zoophilic fungi. These belong on an animal, not on the human. Let's get rid of them. And so the asymptomatic carrier states are often anthropophilic species. And so if someone is an asymptomatic carrier, what can happen? Well, either the fungi can just die off and you can get spontaneous resolution and the big brother is no longer a carrier. You can continue to be a carrier for months after months after months after years. And we know from studies this can go on for many years. Or the patient can actually develop a true infection. So Big Brother, who was a carrier, can actually go on to develop tinea capitis himself. So let's take a look at this LeSurf study of 2022 in skin appendage disorders from May. The authors set out to evaluate the prevalence of asymptomatic carriers in a cohort of household contacts. This was a study in Belgium. It was a prospective study. So children who came in with tinea capitis had family members cultured to see how many are carriers. Patients had their fungi identified by KOH preparations, but as well as cultures. So there were 96 cases of tinea capitis from 95 different families. The main infectious agent of the actual patient that had tinea capitis was emadunii in 53 cases, T. tonsorans in 16, T. sudanense in 14, T. violaceum in 11, and M. canis in 5. Those are the individuals that actually had the fungus infection, not the carrier. The mean age of tinea capitis was about six years. The male-to-female ratio was around three to one. But what about the household contacts? What's so remarkable about this study is they did such a wonderful job trying to track down the household contacts, the family members. That's hard to do, to track down family members who don't think they have any problem why do you need to scrape my scalp? Why do you need to culture my hairs? I have no problem. It's the little child in front of you that has the problem. And so they identified 81 household contacts. Two of those were asymptomatic carriers, and that represented 2.5%. Both were under 10 years of age. One was a girl with M. madunii, and one was a boy with T. tonsorans. So, in Belgium, the rate of asymptomatic carriage was around 2.5%. I really like this study. It's hard to do these kind of meticulous studies in family members who don't have anything wrong with them. At least they don't feel like they have anything wrong with them. Why are you, you know, pestering me by asking me to scrape my hair and, and um, taking my hair so these are really valuable studies to, to understand the asymptomatic carriage rate. The authors point out in their study there's been about 26 studies looking at asymptomatic carriage for tinea capitis published to date. But this is the first European prospective study on asymptomatic carriage in household contacts of tinea capitis. The authors remind us that the rates of asymptomatic carriage ranges all over the place, 
from 0.3% to 97% in the literature. In Spain and Italy, what's the chances of a family member being an asymptomatic carrier? Well, 0.2% in Spain, 0.3% in Italy. What about in South Africa? What's the chance of a family member being a carrier? 49%. What about in the U.S., where T. tonsorans is the most prevalent fungal organism? 8% to 15% of family members may be carriers. So it's all over the place, but the key is that a significant proportion of people are carriers, and it's worthwhile tracking down the brother, the sister, the mother, the father, the grandmother. And the authors of this study point out how difficult it is to track down patients, family members. Many family members decline screening, and it's difficult to track down patients, uh, family members. So I think that's really important, and I commend the authors for pointing this out. It sounds fine and dandy to say, little Sally has tinea capitis. Sally, how many brothers and sisters do you have? Who lives in your household? Okay, everybody come in next visit or next week. We'll scrape everybody. The reality is that doesn't always happen. So it's challenging to track down carriers. The thing that wasn't mentioned in this study, but I think is worth mentioning, is when you culture, and it comes back as a zoophilic fungi, it's really important to think about pets and hobbies and um, other activities as well. Um, you really want to try to identify where the source could be. And of course, we've talked in previous episodes about washing foam mites, washing, you know, combs and brushes and pillowcases, uh, not sharing with other family members, but really thinking carefully about what could be the source of this child's infection. And if children are having recurrent tinea capitis, you really have to go into overdrive with your investigations. Who could be a carrier? Where is the source of recurrent infection? Is it a family member? Is it a school member? Is it someone in the child's hobbies? Um, and how do we stop this ongoing infection? Finally, we talk about a nice study of traction alopecia by Lucia and colleagues in the JAD in May. The title of the study is Traction Alopecia, colon, Neglected in Women and Children of Color. I really like this study. It has some important points for us. The authors performed a re retrospective chart review of patients with traction alopecia in order to better understand how these patients were cared for, and really in order to better understand how these patients should be cared for. So there were 167 patients in this study. Most patients were female and black. The mean age at diagnosis was 31. The range was 1.3 years, just over a year, up to 84 years of age. So really wide range, but significant number of children. 33% of, of patients in this study were pediatric patients. 53% of patients had a history of tight braid use. That was the most common mechanism of traction. Weaves were a mechanism in 7.2%. The sites of traction-related hair loss was the frontal hairline area in 52%, the temple in 47%, the parietal scalp in 2%, and the occipital scalp in 13%. So I think it's important to remember that, that, and I really do think the occipital scalp is underrated in terms of how frequently it's involved in traction alopecia in adults and in children. It's a very common sight. A third of patients presented within one year of their hair loss to the clinic. 51% presented after one year and 12% of patients presented after more than five years of hair loss. A third of patients were not offered treatment. Now, we don't always need to treat traction alopecia, but in my opinion, generally we do. There is a misconception that once you stop the traction forces, loosen the braids, stop the weave, stop the cornrow, stop the ponytail, that the hair grows back. 
You know, that is true if it's very, very, very acute traction alopecia. You have a hairstyle that's been uh, administered for a wedding or a party or a celebration or some event. Sure, you, you, you stop the traction force as hair grows back. But traction alopecia often does not grow back well. But it certainly can with treatment, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But in this study of 167 patients, a third of patients were not offered treatment. 63% of patients were. Of those that were given treatment, topical steroids were offered in 66%, topical minoxidil in 34%, steroid injections in 6.6%, and PRP in 1%. So I think that's really important that... Um, you know, my feeling with traction alopecia is that patients are probably undertreated. I don't think we fully recognize the value of topical minoxidil and traction alopecia, the value of steroid injections, the value of oral minoxidil, and overall the value of treating traction alopecia aggressively. And I'm a big believer in really treating traction alopecia as aggressively as the patient is comfortable with. If a patient's comfortable with steroid injections, 2.5 milligrams per mil, triamcinolone acetonide every six weeks with topical minoxidil, with oral minoxidil, I think it's wonderful, and I'm a big believer in treating traction alopecia aggressively. This study reminds us that, you know, many patients aren't treated aggressively in their treatment protocol, and some patients aren't even offered, offered treatment at all. Of course, a two-month, a two-year-old child with traction alopecia is probably not going to be offered that kind of aggressive plan that I just mentioned, but um, patients are probably undertreated. In this study, the majority of patients did not have follow-up. 67% of patients did not return for follow-up. Only a third of patients did return. And of those patients that did come back, 70% had follow-up for less than six months, 11% had follow-up for six to 12 months, and 18% had follow-up for more than a year. I really think this is a wonderful study. It just highlights that we're not treating traction alopecia as aggressively as we need to. We're not giving patients the follow-up that they need to. We need to treat it aggressively. Patients need long-term follow-up. We need to educate patients about hairstyling practices about the importance of, of traction alopecia causing permanent hair loss, the fact that it may be highly reversible if we catch it early and we change hairstyling practices. Um, that takes time. That takes repeat visits to deliver those educational messages. And two-thirds of patients aren't coming back for follow-up where that message can be returned. And of those that do come back, we're often only seeing them for very short periods of time. Why do we need patients to come back and undergo treatment that, that could work? Well, in this study, of the patients that did come back, 63% improved, 33% stabilized, and only 3% worsened. I think that's wonderful information. Even with this protocol of a very small number having topical minoxidil, a third, very small number having steroid injections, that patients are improving, patients are stabilizing. And what that tells me is that the educational messages we give are very important contributors to this degree of improvement and stabilization that we see. So I really, really like this study. I think it has such important messages. We need to do a better job with traction alopecia. And so that's it for this week. I want to thank you again for tuning in and watching this episode or listening to this episode of the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. We talked about two studies related to COVID shedding, a study by Mazito in the JEADV looking at the fact that the SARS-CoV-2 virus finds its way into the hair follicle cells and that be, may be a mechanism of early dystrophic antigen effluvium. We looked at a nice review by Chech and colleagues in the Journal of Cosmetic Dermatology, which reviewed some 26 articles. We talked about the five COVID fives. We talked about the fact that women are five times more likely to be affected with shedding than men, that the classic mechanism of telogen effluvium, shedding after three months, 
is five times more likely than the dystrophic antigen effluvium early mechanism. It takes five months to recover. 5% may not recover. And there are five types of hair loss with COVID-19. TE, dystrophic antigen effluvium, alopecia areata, seborrheic dermatitis, and scarring alopecia. Clearly, telogen effluvium is the more common mechanism. We talked about trichotillomania and some paradigm shifts in our thinking. Men and women are probably equally affected by trichotillomania. So we need to erase the textbook inputs saying that women are predominantly affected by trichotillomania. The data does not support that. The early data three decades ago did, but not the current updated thinking of trichotillomania. 1% of the population is probably affected by trichotillomania, 8.8% with hair pulling of some kind. A nice study of tinea capita showing that in Belgium, the rate of asymptomatic carriage in family members is about 2.5%. In the US, it's 5%, 10%. In South Africa, it may be 49%. In Italy, it may be 0.2%, 0.3%. Similar in Spain. And so the data is all over the place depending on what country you're in, but a significant proportion of patients have family members who are carrying around these dermatophytes. And we need to be thinking about it and in an ideal world, we need to be examining family members. And a very nice retrospective study by Lucia and colleagues in the JAD of 167 patients with traction alopecia. Only a third of patients got to clinic within one year of their hair loss. A third of patients weren't treated. Only a third of patients had good follow-up. And of those that did have follow-up, only a third of patients had follow-up more than six months. Why do we need follow-up? Why do we need aggressive treatment? Because traction alopecia certainly can improve. And I think we need to treat traction alopecia quite aggressively in order to get those kind of improvements. And if patients have relatively early onset traction alopecia, it makes sense to, to treat it as aggressively as the patient is comfortable with and that you're comfortable with because improvements can occur. And I think we have to delete from our thinking the concept that just loosen the braids, loosen the weaves, loosen the ponytail, and the hair comes back. It does not in many, many cases. We need to cheer on the hair follicles to come back for a prolonged amount of time. And that's when we get our successes. So I want to thank you again for listening. Let us know what you think about the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. We are reachable at info at donovanhairacademy.com. Next week is the third Monday of July, and we're back talking about scarring alopecia. And I'll look forward to welcoming you back here on another episode of the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast.